The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all our, your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayers in order in case you need to confess any sins and privacy of your priesthood to God the Father. And we know that we're instantly forgiven, recover fellowship, restore the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can continue our uh, spiritual growth by taking in the Word of God. So let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word today, that we can, we can let our thinking be energized and transformed and that we might uh, be exposed to the truth of your word and to the fact that you are a God who is greater than all of our circumstances and problems or adversities and that, that you are able to overcome and you are able to give us uh, peace and stability no matter what the circumstances might be. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be encouraged and challenged by it. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 5, and we are going to study in one of the, um, I think, one of the most interesting and in some ways challenging passages in Judges. Because unlike the other chapters in Judges, this is not historical narrative. This is poetry. This is Hebrew poetry. And Hebrew poetry is uh, a challenge to translate. That's why when they start off with, uh, when you're in your second year of Hebrew studies, you start translating Psalms. That's not the first thing you start translating, but it's pretty close because uh, it's very difficult to translate poetry from one language to another because poetic language makes use of a lot of idioms. It makes use of a lot of imagery, a lot of similes and metaphors that do not necessarily carry over from one language to another. And so it involves a tremendous amount of skill in order to not only translate, you can translate it word for word, but then you end up with a somewhat wooden translation that may not make a lot of sense when it comes over into the, into the English. And then you have to start working on your English to try to make it read well as beautiful poetry in English. So it stretches the skill 
of the translator. And in Judges 5, we have the poetic hymn that was written, a praise psalm that was written to praise God for the victory that He gave the Jews over the uh, army of Sisera uh, that we studied last week in Judges chapter 4. So, so this gives us a fascinating look at the development of Scripture where we have one event told first as historical narrative, and then in the next chapter it is related to us in very poetic language as a praise psalm, as a descriptive praise psalm. So we have to understand the category. Now, you remember when we uh, were studying the, our introduction to the Old Testament earlier this year, I took some time when we went through the psalms to say that and talk about the different types of psalms, that there are one, one category of psalms were, uh, that we studied were lament psalms. And in lament psalms, the writer, either you have either an individual lament or a what's called a communal or national lament, where the writer is, is in some sort of adversity. He's going through some sort of difficulty, and he uh, expresses his heartache, his problems, his difficulty to God, and calls upon God for uh, rescue in a time of trouble. And then he describes how God rescues him, and then ends with a, with a brief praise of what God has done to uh, rescue and deliver him. Well, what happened in the d- development of, of the Psalms, and we don't know just when this took place or how in the development of the literature, that final section in a lament psalm, that praise section, was then sort of taken out and divorced from the rest of the lament psalm, where the praise song, the praise section itself would become a psalm in and of itself. And there were basically two types of praise psalms. They're called individual. There's individual praise psalms, and there are national praise psalms. And they can be classified further as either declarative praise psalms, where the person is declaring a specific answer to prayer and describing a specific act of God done on their behalf, or it is a descriptive praise psalm. In a descriptive praise psalm, the writer is giving general praise to God, focusing on perhaps some attribute of God and talking about how great and wonderful and extolling the benefits and the blessings of God. So what we have here when we come to uh, Judges 5 is a declarative praise psalm. And the main idea of a psalm comes from the Hebrew word lahazkir, which means to remember. And it has the idea of reminding us about the attributes of God, His person, who He is, and what He has done in human history. See, we think of history, I think, in our, in our modern context as, as somewhat fluid, if, if not unimportant. And we think that there's an attitude in our culture that history is, is, um, can be reshaped and people can interpret it any way they want to because that's part of our loss of any concept of absolutes. But history is the outworking of God's plan and purposes. And if we look at history from God's perspective, God only needs to do something once. He doesn't need to do it in each and every generation. I think this is one of the problems that undergirds the... Uh, the charismatic Pentecostal problem is that, that there are folks that think that the miracles, the signs and wonders that were performed by Christ, by the apostles at the foundation of the church, need to be repeated for every generation. But the point is that once it has occurred, then we are to remember 
what God has done. And it is just as real and just as valid for God to have healed the blind man, for Jesus to have healed the blind man in John 9. It is just as real and significant as if it were to happen today. But in our view of history, we divorce and we think, well, if it happened a thousand years ago, it can't happen again, so God's not active. And that is a false view of history. And God puts a lot of emphasis on history and on remembering what he has done. That's why when, when the Jews went into the promised land and they crossed over the river Jordan, the first thing they did was they took uh, large rocks and they built a rock cairn made out of 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes, as a memorial so that in future generations when, when a, a family would be traveling and they would come to the fords at the Jordan River and they would see this mound of stones, the children would say, Hey, Pop, what happened there? What's that, what are those stones for? And they would then rehearse the doctrine of how God had brought the people into the land and go back and teach the Abrahamic covenant and the land promises and the land covenant. So it was these historical reminders that were set up, and there were various monuments of that type, rock cairns that were set up around Israel so that people would remember what God had done. But, but as we've seen in our study of Judges, what was happening is that people were forgetting God. And this was the uh, problem in the cycle, is that they were, would forget God. And we studied the Hebrew word there for forgetting, which doesn't mean that you just, uh, oops, forgot to have my devotions this morning. I just got too busy and overlooked it. But it has the idea of an, an intentional removal, that, that, that there is a volitional, a negative volitional choice there to remove God from our conscious thought. And that's what happened in Israel. Of course, what happens is that whenever you remove God from your thinking, you create a vacuum in the soul, and into that soul pours a vast amount of false teaching, false doctrine, and idolatrous concepts. And in the ancient world, they got involved in physical idolatry. And what happens today is rather than getting involved in physical idolatry, we get in, involved in more subtle and sophisticated uh, mental idolatry. And we begin to uh, worship material gain and success. We worship athletes. We worship uh, many different things. Whatever takes priority over the study of God's Word and Bible doctrine becomes an idol at that particular time. And it could be just about anything in our lives. And at that point, once we succumb to idolatry and we are uh, out of fellowship and in carnality, then at that point we become a slave to the sin nature. And unless we uh, confess our sins and we're re restored to fellowship, use God's grace recovery procedure, then what happens is that we, may, we stay in carnality and then we start going through the cycles of of uh, uh, reversionism as we sink deeper and deeper into apostasy and we become soul slaves, slaves in our thinking, slaves in our mentality, and then eventually we become slaves to whatever it is that we are serving in life That because we're, we're looking to that as a source of happiness. And whenever you put your happiness on something in the created realm, on one of the details of life, then you are saying that your emotional well-being, your happiness, your joy is dependent upon that person, those events, that those responses from people, success, material gain, or whatever, and then you are totally uh, enslaved to achieving that or having that person uh, like you or whatever it might be. 
This is what's gone on in Israel, and up to this point, they have gone through two cycles of enslavement that we have seen because they have gone into apostasy by rejecting God and rejecting doctrine. And then they, they recover through confession, they cry out to God, and God provides a deliverer. And in Judges chapter 4, we saw the, the historical episode of how God had raised up Deborah, not in response to a cry, but just as part of God's common grace to Israel as the king to provide someone to adjudicate decisions. And then when it came time that the nation cried out for deliverance, God raised up a military commander in the uh, person of Barak. And he informed Deborah to go commission Barak to lead an army against the armies of Sisera. But Barak was exhibiting the feminist traits of a pagan society. See, one of the symptoms, it doesn't happen in every pagan society, but it, like the, the model we have built is that when you have a, like, like having a disease, someone might have the flu, and one person might have the flu and are the same disease and have one set of symptoms, and another person may have similar and yet a few other symptoms, the same thing is true with paganism. All human viewpoint thought is going to manifest a certain set of, of symptoms in the culture. One culture may manifest symptoms in one way. Another culture may go the other way, just like in a person. When a person becomes apostate and is controlled by the sin nature, one person is going to manifest trends towards antinomianism and lasciviousness and licentiousness. And another person is going to manifest symptoms toward uh, legalism and asceticism. They're, they're both manifestations of sin nature control in the soul, but they are different, but they're the same symptoms. So one culture may exhibit a certain pattern of symptoms with, because of pagan thought, and another culture will exhibit a uh, maybe even antithetical symptoms, but they're all part of the, representing what happens in, in, uh, as we fall into paganism. And what happened in the ancient world, what, happened, what is happening today is... Um, that you get this role reversal. Now, I just wish I had the time to go out and really do some detailed study on some of these things, and I don't know, even know if the data is available, but there are certain things that seem to go together and seem to be interconnected. And I'm not saying that there are direct cause-effect relationships. I think the ultimate cause is sin nature control, and it produces certain effects, and these effects seem to be related to one another. But what we see in the book of Judges in terms of, of uh, pagan, the, the influence of paganism on the culture is we started off and we had an ideal view of, of, a, of a marriage of Othniel and Oxa back in the first chapter. And they, nothing negative is said about that couple. Oxa is presented as a, as a woman who is not only oriented to the authority of her father and her husband, but she's far-seeing. She exercised initiative. If you remember, we, we saw that, that when, when Othniel conquered Devere, God gave him the property down in the Negev. I mean, uh, uh, Caleb gave him property down in the Negev as a reward, but it, it didn't have any springs. And, so, and he also gave him his daughter as a, as a reward, and, and she doesn't fight it. She, is, she shows respect to her father. She's married to Othniel, this great warrior who trusts God. And yet she realizes that in this, this tract of land that Othniel was given, there, is no, there are no springs. It's, it's dry land. It's desert land. So she goes back to her father. She gets off her donkey. She shows respect. She shows uh, proper uh, uh, that she's been brought up well and, and shows uh, all the proper 
farms in that culture, and she requests of her father additional land that has springs on it, and he grants her request. So, so she's presented as a woman who is who has wisdom and foresight and thinks in terms of future generations and providing for her children or grandchildren, great-grandchildren on down the line in terms of their later possession of this land. And then the next woman that we see in this book is Deborah. And Deborah is presented as, as a prophetess. She's wise. She is uh, leading the nation, adjudicating uh, conflicts between people in the nation. And she calls forth Barak. And, and now we see something negative, just a hint. It's a strong hint of something negative because Barak won't go into battle unless Deborah goes with him. So we see that, that Deborah has to step into the gap of leadership, and you see this trend towards masculinization of, of women and feminization of men. And then in a couple of weeks, when we get to Jephthah, we're going to see that what happens is you go, get into a situation in a culture where you don't understand the proper roles of males and females in society, that what happens is women start becoming victimized. And so Jephthah goes out to war, promises God he'll sacrifice whatever comes out of the door of the house to greet him when he comes home. He comes home and his daughter runs out, and so he, uh, he uh, builds an altar and offers her up as a burnt offering. He kills his daughter. She's a, a victim of his paganism. And then we come eventually to Samson, and he's a sexual predator in modern parlance. And uh, he just can't control his lust patterns whatsoever. And uh, this is typical of the culture. And then there's some other episodes that take place with, in uh, Judges 17 and 18 in the epilogue there that demonstrate all of these problems. Another thing that, that happens as part of this in the, in, the, in the leadership thing, and I'm not saying that women can't function as leaders in certain areas. In the Scriptures, they are specifically forbidden to function in the role of explaining Scripture. They are not to teach or have authority over men, and that teaching implies authority. It doesn't say that women can't be a CEO of a country, of a company, that they can't have a leadership role in a, a social organization, they can't have a, a leadership role in politics. It simply restricts it in that one specific area of leadership in the realm of teaching the Word and in, and in spiritual things in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. But what happens in a, in a culture where you start seeing paganism take over and this, these role reversals take over is that, that men tend to abdicate their position of leadership and then women have to take over. It happens in the home and it happens outside the home and you see women becoming more and more uh, masculinized. And I was down, when I was talking with this pastor down in Houston this, this last week, we got back to the subject that so many of these men are concerned about, and that is that, that in their circles, and this is happening more, it's happened in the liberal circles for, for several decades where they have ordained women and had women, women pastors, but now it's coming into some of the more conservative Baptist denominations. Southern Baptist Convention is going through a major battle over this right now, and so are many of the black churches, and I mentioned a problem last week of an association of churches in Columbus, Ohio, where there were about 54 uh, black churches, uh, black Baptist churches, and of those, 48 have women pastors. Now, that's not necessarily senior pastor, but they have women pastors on staff who are preaching. And he was telling me that of the top 10 black churches in Houston, that only two do not have women on pastoral staff. 
as pastors, none have a senior pastor. Another thing that he pointed out, and this will be interesting, and he's gone through a couple of seminaries trying to get some, some additional training, and uh, it's hard when, you're, when you don't have time to go to a school and, and, and leave your church and trying to find some kind of correspondence. And he went to one up in the uh, Midwest, and he was not allowed, he lasted about three weeks, he was not allowed to refer to God as he. Uh, if he ever referred to God as he in any of the papers that he wrote, then, then he automatically failed the paper. And they were very strong in promoting women leadership. Now, his contention from his experience, and he's been around a lot of women preachers in his circles, and he said that there is a high percentage of lesbianism among the women preachers. And I think these things would go together because what you see is this role reversal and this masculinization. So what you have in, a, in, in society is a result of a, of, a, of a culture becoming more and more controlled by pagan ideas is you have the uh, uh, men become effeminate and you have a rise of homosexuality among men. And then on the uh, woman's side, you have masculinization of women. They, they get fed up with their husbands because the husbands aren't leading in the home. And so now they... they uh, uh, divorce them and they become the leader in the home and then they go out and get a job and you see this permeating society and it becomes something that has cumulative effects and eventually it affects sexual identity. So that now we have uh, uh, a group out in California who's trying to get the California State Board of Education to adopt a definition of sexual identity that is based upon perception self-perception, not how other people see you. So one day you may think up and be, wake up and be in touch with your feminine side and be Mrs. Smith, and the next day you wake up and you feel a little more masculine, so you're Mr. Smith, and that's going to be just fine according to state law if that gets passed. So these are the kinds of silly things that are going on in our world, and it's not new. These kinds of things have happened throughout the ages. And as believers, we have to learn how to live in the midst of a culture that is becoming more and more paganized without letting that influence our thinking because it's very easy to do that because we live with family members and with friends and we have to work, in many cases, in jobs where there are government mandates to um, put into place certain procedures in, in, in the workplace that we know are ultimately uh, uh, disastrous for the country because of the way they affect the, how people view the roles of men and women in society. And that this leads to a breakdown of the divine institution of family and leads to a breakdown of the divine institution of marriage. And eventually, once those break down, and, and we're there now, they have broken down, in case you don't know that, uh, once we get there then it's not long before the nation just disintegrates from the inside out because of fragmentation. And uh, all of that is what's going on. Now, Israel combats that, not always successfully. We see these trends and these symptoms here in Judges chapter 5, or 4 and 5. And in Judges 4, we see that, that Barak is called out by Deborah to lead the troops, the army against Sisera, and he is victorious. But because of his unwillingness to, to be the leader, to be the, the leader that God intended the, the man to be and to take, have courage to go forth into battle and to defeat the enemy, he is told that he will not have the 
the glory of the victory. It will not be his. He will have the victory, and for, to that degree, he is, he is honored and praised. But, but the ultimate victory, the destruction of the enemy, and that's the goal in combat, is to destroy the enemy, not just to uh, reach a balance of power. And see, that's another problem that we have in, in modern society is, is too often what we find at the upper echelons of leadership in nations is an attempt to try to control history. God is the one who controls history. Jesus Christ controls history and controls the destinies of nations. But we see man in his autonomy. Once you reject God, then man has to move on to the throne and try to control history. And so the attempt is made to, to maintain a balance of power. And this is what gives rise to so many of the things that we've seen over the last uh, 20, 30 years is where you have like things where the CIA gets involved in, sell, in selling drugs. You have other groups getting involved in arms trades because they're trying to manipulate uh, power bases between Arab countries and Central American countries to maintain what they perceive as the proper uh, balance of power. And ultimately, that house of cards is going to uh, collapse and fall apart because man cannot manipulate history or control history. It is God who controls history, and the ultimate issues in history, as we see in our study of Judges, are, are spiritual issues. And that's why, when it comes down to Israel's deliverance here, the issues are fundamentally spiritual, and God is praised, and God is the one who gets the glory for the victory that He brings about. So we come to Judges 5, and we need to start and look at this overall psalm. We're going to have to deal with it in one, as one element because it's an integrated unit. And I want to give you a brief outline, just, a stru- just to help structure our understanding of this passage. In terms of the first major division is just the first verse, which gives us the title of the psalm in verse 1. Then the second section, which gets into the praise section, is a proclamation to praise Yahweh. And this is in verses 2 through 8. And then there is a report or description of the deliverance. This is in verses 9 through 30. So the reported of the deliverance... Verses 9 through 30, and then we will break that down a bit as we get into it. Let's start off going through this verse by verse. Open your Bibles and look at the first verse. 5, 1 says, Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day. So this introduces us to the hymn. On that day doesn't necessarily mean on that specific day. Here it has a general reference to at that time. And there's a lot of discussion in the literature as to when this psalm was developed, but it was written by uh, probably Deborah after the battle had taken place in response. So they had a celebration, and that's what worship is all about. It is a celebration of what God has done in our lives, ultimately in terms of solving the greatest problem we'll ever face, which is salvation. And because He's done that, He's given us the ability, and He's given us the spiritual assets to solve any other problem that we can face in life. Then we come to the proclamation to praise God in verses 2 through 8. 
It begins in verses 2 and 3 with the call, the invitation to praise, that the people should come forth and praise. Verse 2, that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered, bless the Lord. Now, this verse 2 is an interesting phrase in the Hebrew that the leaders led in Israel literally reads that the releasers who release. Now, now, what exactly does that mean? Well, this is a difficult word. It's a um, hapax in the... Or it's not quite a hapax, but it's only used twice in the Hebrew and the Old Testament. And it had to do with men who had... Uh, and let their hair grow long, like a Nazarite vow. It's not speci- they weren't specifically uh, Nazarites, but they had let their hair grow long. And the reason was that, that it indicated, that, they, like a Nazarite, that they had made a special vow to God. And that related to their military service. So this apparently refers to the fact that this was a special group of troops in the military that had... Uh, made a vow to God that they were going to defeat and throw off the enemy and they would not cut their hair until that had had been accomplished. So they had dedicated their lives to um, uh, train, to be uh, skilled in their uh, weapons so that they could be used in combat. So they were, uh, this refers to a special group that would not go home until they had thrown off the power of the uh, Canaanites who were oppressing Israel. So this indicates that there were some men in the nation, not all had, were as wishy-washy as Barak, but there were some who were definitely stepping into the gap to function as leaders. That's why this term comes to be translated as leaders, because they had taken the initiative to, um, to take these vows and to be at the forefront of battle. This was the, the point team that was sent into the combat with the, with the uh, chariots of Sisera. We saw last time that one of the reasons Israel had succumbed was because they were overpowered by the military might of the Canaanites. They had over 900 iron chariots that would go up and down the valley of Esdralon, the valley of Jezreel, which is the same place the Battle of Armageddon will take place. And as they uh, went up and down, they just wreaked havoc among the farms. And every time they would harvest, they would come along and steal everything so that there was economic uh, depression in the area and there was violence and criminality and there was no safety anywhere. And that's why the armies of Sisera had to gather up in the highlands because it was only up in the hill hill country that the, the uh, chariots could not operate, could not function. So these men had taken the initiative to prepare themselves so that they could go into combat against this superior fighting force, even if it meant hand-to-hand combat. So there's praise for them that the leaders led in Israel, that the people volunteered. Not, not all were cowards. And this refers to the fact that they volunteered and they, were, they understood the principle of that true freedom is gained through military victory. And it is preserved through a strong military. And it is only that way because we live in a fallen world. 
And what happens is, when you, when you have to deal with people who do not understand the military, do not like the military, do not think it's, it's necessary for a nation to have a strong military, and they're pacifists, they do not understand the realities of living in a fallen world. And that God never uh, condemns or criticizes any nation for getting involved in, uh, in war because it's war, or because, for having a strong military. So Deborah is praising God here for two things, for the fact that there are some men who function as leaders, and secondly, that the people are willing to step forward now and to fulfill their role in delivering the nation. You see, what we, what we must understand again and again is that when we pray to God for deliverance, there are certain responsibilities that, uh, that are on our shoulders, and there are certain things that are on God's shoulders. God's going to give us the victory. But it's our responsibility to learn doctrine and apply doctrine in the process, and then God is the one who is going to come in and solve the problem. We may not know how He is going to do it. He may not remove the circumstances. He might remove the circumstances. It may take years before He changes the circumstances. But in the meantime, we are to be involved in our responsibility. God just doesn't come into Israel and send down thunderbolts from heaven and wipe out the army of the Canaanites so that all the Israelites do is just sit back and enjoy the benefits. They get involved in their part, which is being willing to go out and fight and be willing to uh, die if necessary for the freedom of the nation. Then in verse 3 we read, Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers, I to the Lord, I will sing, I will sing praise to the Lord, the God of Israel. And what we see in verse 3 harkens back to the Abrahamic covenant. Remember in the Abrahamic covenant, God said to, promised Abraham that in his seed all nations would be blessed. Those who blessed Israel, God would bless, and those who cursed Israel, God would curse. So here Deborah is addressing all of the nations so that they would see an example of how God is faithful to his covenant and how God has blessed the nation. This is an example in one sense of evangelism in the Old Testament, one form in which it took. She is addressing the nation, see what God has done. God is a God of history. He acts in history. He is in control of history. This is the true God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who interacts in history and controls history. He is the God who provides salvation and deliverance. And so you as the Gentile nations must learn to come uh, into right relationship with God. So that is an indication of an Old Testament appeal to, uh, for evangelism in the, old, in the uh, ancient world. Then we come to an introductory summary of what God is being praised for in verses 4 and 5. There we read, Lord, when thou didst go out from Seir, that's another name for Edom, which is, uh, or Moab, which is on the eastern side of the Dead Sea. When thou didst march from the field of Edom, the earthquake, the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. And this is a reference back to how God had delivered Israel and some of the battles they fought as they were coming up before they entered into the land. And notice, um, there, this is also uh, a second reference is to God's activity at Sinai in verse 5. The mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord, this Sinai, 
at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel, saying on that day. So there is a reminder of how God has worked to deliver Israel in the past, that it has involved supernatural events that God worked in and and used to bring deliverance to the nation. And this is a hint. We don't know exactly what God did in giving them victory, but the, uh, the suggestion in the text is that as the uh, troops of, of Barak gathered up on the, in the hill country, that it forced, because of their maneuvers, they forced the uh, chariots of Sisera to go up along the Wadi uh, Kishon. Now, this is just the edge of this area, but it was in this uh, upper area here, nor- north towards what was later Cana of Galilee and Nazareth in this hill country. This represents higher elevations that the, um, that the army of, of uh, Barak gathered here and on the hill of Mount uh, Tabor. And then, it's, just, it's not on the map, but the Wadi Kishon comes down through this darker green area here, which is the, which is the lower level, and that would only run with water during the rainy season. So Cicero would not take his troops into a dangerous area like that during the time of the rainy season because they could be wiped out by a flash flood. So he takes them there at this time because it's a dry season. There's no possibility that that's going to happen. And But what does happen is God sends the torrent, sends the rain at the um, uh, upper elevations. And as the troops are maneuvered into this area, then God acts in history and sends a flood which wipes out the army. So we never know how God is going to give us the victory, but if we're in the right place, doing the right thing in our spiritual life, then God is the one who promises to take care of the situation. So we trust in Him. Then we come down to verses 6 through 8, which describes their need, their problem, the adversity, the stress, I mean, the, um, the adversity and the testing that they had faced. It identifies the time that it was in the days of Shamgar. Now, we studied Shamgar at the end of Genesis, I mean, the end of Judges 3.31, that Shamgar was not a judge, he was just a deliverer. And the suggestion there, because of his name and his identification as the son of Anat, was that he was not a Jew. He was not a believer. He was a Gentile who was used by God because of the lack of leadership in Israel to defeat the Philistines. See, in, in, in Israel, they were, had problems with the Canaanites under, under Yavin and Sisera in the north. They had had problems with Eglon to the east. And now the Philistines, who were Greek sea peoples, who were settling colonies along the, along the coast down to the, down to the southwest, were beginning to flex their muscles. So God used Shamgar to just come up and he killed 600 Philistines with cattle prod. Must have been an interesting... Uh, scene there. It kills five, 600 Philistines with a cattle prod just to keep them settled down so they wouldn't threaten the uh, left flank of the nation. So it's uh, in the days of Shamgar. So this happens roughly at the same time, a few years earlier prob- uh, perhaps. We don't know for sure. The text doesn't tell us. But it does c- use parallelism here to suggest that this is in roughly the same time. In the days of Shamgar, the son of Anat, in the days of Jael. Now Jael was the wife of Heber the Kenite who drove the tent peg through the uh, temple of Sisera. After the battle, we remember last week that Sisera fled on foot and he came to 
the tents of Heber the Kenite. And there, this is a picture. I love these old Bibles. I got these pictures years ago when I was uh, teaching judges to illustrate these things. That uh, There's a picture of Sisera who is laid down in the tent of uh, Jael and he's taking his nap and she sneaks in with a tent peg and a hammer and uh, drives the stake through his skull. And uh, she is then praised mightily in this psalm because she is the one who has brought the ultimate and final deliverance in this problem to the nation Israel. So that's uh, the reference to her here. In the days of Jael, the highways were deserted and travelers went by roundabout ways. Now, the reference to highways here reminds us that these were the caravan routes. This was the path of commerce, how they moved goods across the ancient world. And if you have a map of the entire ancient world, the Mediterranean, you have the Hittite nation up in what's modern Turkey. Then to the east, you have the uh, Assyrian uh, people. And then to the south of there, the Babylonians. And then you come along and you have Israel located. And then to the southeast, uh, south of the Mediterranean, you have Egypt. And so that Israel was located on the crossroads of the caravans. And so all goods passed through Israel. So if things were going well in times of stability, then there would be material prosperity in Israel. They would have access to, to uh, imported goods that came from all over the ancient world. In fact, that we even have indications that they had spices available to them that came from a far, as far away as India, as Southeast Asia, and uh, Central Asia. And that these, these spices were available to them, so there must have been tremendous trade. Now, that also had implication for evangelism, because as these, these caravanners, the, the truckers of the ancient world, convoys through Israel, then they would uh, see this, what was going on in Israel. And if they were following the Lord, then they would, they would hear about God, and they would hear, see this, this people and the wonderful things that God was doing, and then they would go back and tell their people. So... That was the way in which evangelism was conducted among Gentiles in the ancient world. But what we see here is because of Israel's carnality, because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry and apostasy, now they are under the fourth cycle of discipline and they are under economic oppression so that the highways are deserted. There are no caravanners coming through. There are no Gentiles coming through the land because there's too much turmoil and violence, so they were having to route their way around through some other means. As a result, the people were becoming impoverished. They didn't have access to uh, a lot of the things that they perhaps had grown dependent on or enjoyed that were imported from other uh, parts of the world. So it had an economic stranglehold on the nation. They couldn't ship out their the goods that they were producing and they couldn't bring in goods because the Canaanites were controlling everything. So this was impoverishing the nation and they were under an economic, in an economic depression during this time. Travelers went by roundabout ways. They, they had to find alternative routes to avoid Israel, much like what's going on today. Judges 5 verse 7, the peasantry ceased. They And then it's repeated again for emphasis. They ceased in Israel. See, what happens is that the farmers had to desert their land and their farms in the lowlands because they were being overrun by the chariot forces of the Canaanites. And because if they weren't down there operating on their farms, then no uh, uh, 
vegetables and no uh, grain was being produced. And the result was that people went hungry. There wasn't uh, grain for food. There, they didn't have anything to get them through the hard times. So not only was commerce disrupted, but there was probably a, a, a famine in the land as a result of their inability to produce. And it's interesting how God has used that in Israel through the years, during the time from 70 A.D. up until the return of the uh, of Jews to uh, Israel and the reestablishment of the modern state of Israel in 1948, the land was hardly produced anything. It just became desert. And then as the Jews returned, they began to introduce uh, irrigation and they introduced uh, crop rotation and all sorts of modern uh, ways to make the land uh, fruitful. And it has once again produced a bountiful harvest. And Israel is uh, economically viable because of their hard work and their their energy, something that the Arabs could never do and would never do. They're, they're, they, they're just jealous now. This whole Palestinian uh, conflict is, is derived because they're jealous. We, you, we had the land and didn't do anything with it, and now you've got it and you've made it a, a wonderful place to live, so we want to steal it from you. And they're, they're whining and crying about it, which I guess is a modern way to deal with, with uh, any kind of adversity in life, is that, that you just whine and cry and throw a temper tantrum about it. So we won't go there right now because we'll get too distracted. Verse 8, we go back to the basic problem. And the basic problem is spiritual then and it's spiritual now. It's not political. It's not economic. It is not agricultural. The problem was a spiritual problem. They weren't farming. They weren't operating the farms. They didn't have commerce because ultimately it went back to their apostasy. Verse 8, new gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. And there's almost a cause-effect relationship here when we go back to the big picture because they had succumbed to apostasy and were serving the false gods and had become influenced by the Canaanites. God was taking them through the uh, various the four cycles of discipline. Ultimately, uh, they're in the fourth cycle where they're under oppression. And... As a result of the oppression of the Canaanites and the Philistines, they've got a disarmament policy towards Israel and won't allow them to have iron or to have blacksmiths in the land. We learned that from 1 Samuel. And as a result of that, they do not have the means to defend themselves, and so they're at the mercy of the tyrants. And that is always the case when someone wants to control a culture, they first take away the people's ability to protect themselves. And that is why we have to be very careful with these gun laws because the ultimate agenda for many people is to, to, isn't just to have a, a way of tracking guns so that they can uh, arrest criminals when they commit a crime because the criminals are always going to have guns and they're going to have those that can't be traced. But it is ultimately to take away from the citizens the ability to defend themselves so that those who are operating on power lust can then tyrannize the citizenry, and we've seen examples of that. There was an incident that occurred this last year in England where a man did, owned an illegal weapon. He had a pistol. He did not have a license for it. He kept it in his house. He had had it for years since before uh, these, some of these laws had gone into effect. And one night, two men broke into the house, and they were attacking him and his wife, and he pulled out the pistol, and he shot them. Well, you would think that that was good, and in Texas, we would applaud the man and make him a hero. But in England, they arrested him for murder and put him in prison where he is serving a life sentence because 
it didn't matter that the fact that these men were criminals. What mattered was that he had murdered them. And he had used that horrible, horrible, evil weapon called a pistol. So uh, that is just a way in which those who are in power seek to tyrannize and control the citizenry. Then in verse 9, we get into the report of how God has delivered Israel. And the principle is that no matter what the problem is that faces us, even in the case of self-induced misery, which is the situation we have here, Israel is in this problem because of their own disobedience, because of their carnality, because of their apostasy. That is why they're under oppression. That even when we have messed things up to the maximum in our own lives, our failures are never too great for the grace of God. And God is still able to uh, change the circumstances and change the situation and reverse our fortune. But first we have to turn to Him with 1 John 1, 9 and, uh, and begin to learn and apply doctrine and start making uh, good decisions from a position of strength. And a position of strength is being in fellowship, operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying doctrine. A position of weakness is always being in carnality because when we produce from the sin nature, it ultimately and always is going to be self-destructive. Whether it's human good or whether it is sin, it is always going to uh, fall apart eventually. And all sin and human good is consistent with the policies and the procedures of Satan in his cosmic system. And we've studied cosmic thought that it is defined in James 3. Uh, 13 through 15, as earthly, natural, and demonic. So it is always self-destructive. Now, in verse 9 through 30, we have the description of how God delivers us even when we have uh, messed up to the maximum. Verse 9 through 11, we have the uh, summary which is challenging us to listen carefully to pay attention to doctrine and to understand how God has worked. Because just as God has done this in history, in the past, God can do the same thing in our lives and in our nation's life. Verse 9, my, uh, Deborah says, My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, the volunteers among the people. Bless the Lord. Verse 10, You who ride on white donkeys, that refers to the upper classes, the aristocracy, those who are are wealthy and who possess the finer animals and finer transportation. Today we would say those who are riding around in BMWs and Mercedes. And, and uh, I wonder if the plural of Lexus is, uh, is Lexi. Just wanted to see if anybody was awake this morning. The, those who ride on white donkeys, those who have the, uh, the, the material means to have the best transportation, those who sit on carpets... This would refer to the middle class. And then the last, you who travel on the road, that's those who, who walk on the road, that would refer to the, the, the uh, lower classes, the, those who did not have access to the uh, greatest level of, of uh, transportation. So it involves the fact that, that Deborah is basically saying that it doesn't matter what your economic station in life is, whether you are in the aristocracy of the nation, the upper middle upper class, or whether you're in the lower classes, everyone owes their freedom to military victory. And so it is a responsibility of everyone, no matter what your station in life is, to volunteer for the military and to serve in the military. And this goes back to Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 9, 
which shows that Israel had a military system that was based on volunteering and it was based on un every male understanding the responsibility of uh, serving in the military. It was not something for women to serve in the military. Women should not be serving, at least in combat positions. I don't have think there's a problem with women serving in many of the support roles, but Today, the, the uh, agenda of the liberal uh, feminist left is to put women in combat. And what happens there, I have uh, been told and have read some of the reports that have not been out, never been published by the, are, are, are reported on by the national media about what happened to some of the women who were capti captured during Desert Storm. And they were raped continuously daily. It wasn't just once a day, it was several times every day, the entire time that they were captured. And that's not reported because if the American people knew what happened to the women who were captured by, by the Iraqis during the war, then uh, there would be tremendous outrage because most people would rise up and, not, and, and take a stand against putting women in any position that would open them up to that kind of, uh, of assault. But in a pagan culture, you no longer care about things like that. And so we are willing to put our women in a position of danger. It's interesting that the people who have the same agenda of uh, dumping on the males for all the problems in society and going after them for every form of abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, and whatever, are the same people who want to put women in combat positions so that they can be captured as prisoners of war and abused on a daily basis. That's the inconsistencies of the liberal left position. So Deborah is calling for all to come forth and under God's standard that would just apply to the men who would come, come out in order to serve in the nation's army to bring military victory. Verse 11. At the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places, there they shall recount the righteous deeds of the Lord, the righteous deeds for His peasantry in Israel. Then the people of the Lord went down to the gates. Now, at the sound, this first phrase, at the sound of those who divide flocks among the watering places. This is referring to the fact that there were those who, uh, who would um, take the, the, their, the sheep down to the watering places and protect them and, and uh, guard them against the assault of uh, the wild animals, the lions, the wolves, the bears that inhabited the wild places. By extension, what that applies to is the army that is serving in that same function towards the flock of God. They are the ones who are, are protecting the nation. This is the army. And there, there they would gather after the battle and to recount what God has done. Not to recount and extol their own deeds and how great they functioned in the battle, but to apply it all back to the Lord and how He had functioned in His role as the nation's protector. Then starting down in verses 12 through 15, there's a, there's a listing in praise for the tribes who responded, and there is also criticism for those who did not. Verse 12, Awake, awake Deborah, awake, awake, sing a song, Arise, Barak, and take away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then survivors came down to the nobles. The people of the Lord came down to me as, as warriors. 
from Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek. That means that they had been the Ephraimites in the hill country, in the central area, had had uh, uh, problems being oppressed by Amalekites. See, we still come up, even though it's primarily... Uh, the oppression here was attributed to Yavin and the army of Sisera. <coughs> we see it wasn't just Canaanites. Now, back when we started this, back several, probably a couple of months ago, when we were in Judges 3, I talked about the fact that there's an analogy here, that God left the Canaanite tribes in the land, and then there were also those outside the land who were the Philistines and the... Um, the Amalekites, the Moabites, the Midianites, the Ammonites, and other groups that oppressed Israel from the outside. And that it was God left these Canaanite tribes, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Girgashites, all the other ites, in the land in order to test Israel. They were not oppressors, though. Now, it seems, if you look at this, it seems when it's uh, at Hatsor, the, the Yavin, the king of Hatsor, is... Uh, a Canaanite, that they're, they're oppressing the land. So it sounds like an oppression from inside, but it's really not. They're in league with the Amalekites from outside the land. Hatsor was defeated by Joshua back in Joshua chapter 10 and wiped out, and the town was, <coughs> excuse me, the town was destroyed. And so you had the, the royal family of Hatsor, that the title was Yabin, they're, they, they're in exile. And so they're in exile outside the land in, co- in, a, in a coalition with, with a Sisera uh, who comes from a town called Harasheth, Hagoyim, Harasheth of the nations. It's, a, it's the Gentiles. It's not in Israel. And now we see an introduction of the Amalekites. So these are the outside forces that are constantly coming against Israel. You always, there's always somebody different at the top, but it's the same groups of people. And it's the same people that are oppressing Israel today, the same Arab groups that are involved today. So it's just like the right off the front page. From Ephraim, whose root is in Amalek, they came down following you, Benjamin, from your peoples. From Machir, commanders came down. So this is praise for those who got involved in the battle. But then, starting in the latter part of 15, she attacks and criticizes Issachar and Reuben because they failed to get involved and to follow the call. Well, we are about out of time, so we're going to stop here. And we'll pick up in the in verse about verse 15 next time to finish the uh, song of Deborah with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you that you are a God of grace, a God who provides deliverance for us in times of trouble. You are, you are the God who is our, our stronghold, our fortress. You are our deliverer and our shield, our high tower. And you are the one who protects us from all of the adversities of life. And you do that through the Holy Spirit who indwells and fills us and through your doctrine that controls our thinking. Father, we thank you that we have your your truth and your word, that it is a light into our path and a lamp into our feet, and that it is only in thy light that we see light, that we can properly understand the things that go on around us. Father, we thank you that our ultimate deliverance comes from Jesus Christ who went to the cross to die as a substitute for our sins. And we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make that sure and certain right now. All that is necessary is that they believe in Jesus Christ, that they trust in Him as the one who died on the cross for their sins, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that He died as our substitute according to the Scriptures, was buried, rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 
It does not involve any act of humiliation. It does not involve any act of joining a church or, or making a bargain with you. It simply involves accepting the free gift of salvation based on Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Father, we pray that you would call, help us remember and recall the things that we have learned today that we might have, have a confidence in you in the times of our own adversities and struggles. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.